I remember the year in which the world began to change. The year when not all at once, but scene by scene, color began to replace the black and white world of my early childhood. You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show cuts a different slice of life in Brooklyn, telling New York's story in the voice of the people who live it. And while that story's gone viral in the show's recent past, this week we're charting a new course for the future. Actually, tomorrow scared me a little. We hope for so much from the future because our present seems so empty. Here we were, a mighty nation, our people strong and willing, and millions living on charity or on the streets. Everything shabby, worn out, stalled. First, we go behind the scenes with the Extrapolation Factory as they guide a team of prophetic New Yorkers through designing the city of the future. Next, we drop in on the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers Group for a well-told version of what the future might hold. Then, as hospitalizations and positive case counts rise all over Brooklyn, we revisit sage advice we got back in March on preparing for the worst. And along the way, we take a retrofuturistic look at where we thought we'd be by now and get dispatches from the present on where we may be headed next. Thinking men and women believe that the waste, the frustration, the killing poverty were worse than evil. They were unnecessary. They believe we could rebuild our fallen system so that it served people instead of consuming them. All it would take was informed, democratic assent to central planning and a willingness to shake off the past. When it feels like the entire world could change next month, or next week, or every couple of hours, it gets harder and harder to plan ahead. But we're doing all right and our best to make the grade. And since anything's possible when you're speaking hypothetically, let's just assume that the future's so bright that we gotta wear shades in Brooklyn, USA. And before you open a wonderland, an America from which the past, my present, had vanished seemingly without a trace. Twenty twenty has been a year that defies imagination. Tomorrow seems neither guaranteed nor at all predictable. But this time of utter upheaval and transformation also presents the opportunity to chart a new course in our own individual lives as well as within our communities and in society at large. The first step in imagining a new tomorrow is understanding that there is no such thing as the future, but rather an array of possible futures that lie before us. And one way of exploring these potentialities is through the practice of speculative design, in which hypothetical design objects tell a story about a possible future. Examples from this space include a gun that transforms tears into ammunition, popsicles made of polluted water, and headgear for enhanced detection of chemical pollutants. Entertainments like Star Trek and Black Mirror are essentially built around speculative design. 
And indeed, a year ago, a face shield designed for everyday wear would have fit into this realm quite nicely. Back in a time when the word corona was still primarily used in NYC in reference to a neighborhood in Queens, I had the opportunity to follow a speculative design duo as they led a workshop in the Corona neighborhood of Queens at the Queens Museum. Elliot Montgomery and Chris Wobkin, who call their studio the Extrapolation Factory, seek to democratize the process of speculative design. And in this workshop, they helped local residents to imagine and temporarily live in the futures they'd like to see. Yeah, I was thinking that could be repurposed so you can like put it together in other ways. Yeah. I don't know. That's why I didn't put it together. I think it works with battery. Maybe string. Let's grab a few more like plants. This kind of stuff. Clamps would be good. Their studio in the Navy Yards is filled with materials of various size, shape, and colors, which they're going through for the supplies for this workshop. So right now we're really just taking a stock of all of the materials that we've collected so far, sorting out the pieces that we know we want to have in the workshop, thinking about what these things might trigger in terms of inspired ideas. Some artifacts here we bought, but we also try to repurpose things and like try to source them from thrift stores or um, found objects. The extrapolation factory was an experiment that we started to um, see how we can make speculative design more accessible. Our practice uses design as a way to envision our own versions of the future. It might be helpful to consider speculative design and future studies as two spaces that sometimes collide but don't necessarily work in the same way. And so future studies is, is built around this notion that we can start to imagine possible hypotheticals or versions of the future and think about how to avoid the ones that we don't want to get to and at the same time work toward the versions of the future that we would rather live in. Speculative design being a more amorphous and sometimes artistic space where we see practitioners start to navigate through design challenges in ways that don't map to standard design practices. Really the first project that we wanted to do was 99 Cent Futures. The challenge in the 99 Cent Store project was to distill ideas for a possible version of the future into a product of some sort that you might find in a dollar store in the future. We wanted to bring speculative design outside of the academic space and a gallery setting into an authentic space that was the 99 Cent Store in downtown Brooklyn. And that's the first time that we actually created this step-by-step -step process that would allow you to come up with a story and then also with an idea for an artifact and then prototype it. The 99 Cent Futures project culminated in the display and actual sale in a 99 cent store on Flatbush Avenue in downtown Brooklyn of the items dreamt up by the participants in the workshop. 
reflecting visions of what might be sold in a 99-cent store of the future. Things like a cartridge refill for a genomic printer, Mars survival kits, and triple-nipple baby bottles. It also led to subsequent workshops for walking non-designers through the process of telling stories about possible futures through prototyping hypothetical design objects. Over the years, this approach expanded to include improv actors to assist in living out scenarios and temporarily dwell in the future that the objects help create. For this workshop at the Queen's Museum, they'll help the participants imagine a hypothetical Queen's of tomorrow, prototype props and sets to live out those visions, and come back a week later to actually act out their imagined futures, aided by improv actors. Are you a participant as well? Yeah. Wonderful, all right, yeah. thank you. I'm Elliot. Elliot, I'm Jordan. Jordan, nice, nice to meet you. Yeah. Okay, great. Wonderful, thank you guys all so much for coming. It's really great to be here, great to have you here. We're gonna be working with you guys to come up with these experimental, radical ways that your neighborhood could work differently than it does today. That's the mission of our project today. So this will be a two-step process. So today we'll do a design workshop where we'll come up with lots and lots of ideas and then narrow it down, be become more concrete, build out a start of a prototype. Next week, we'll um, have a build-out set, so to say, of the scenario that you've been envisioning. We're going to give you a set of note cards. And on the note cards, you're going to write things that you think about when you think about Queens today. So these could be things that you love, things that you kind of don't like about Queens. What makes your neighborhood rich, vibrant, your own neighborhood? What makes it yours? What are the things that nobody knows about except for you guys because you live in this neighborhood? So it might be a, a new health system that you'd like to see in your neighborhood. It might be a new economy of sorts, maybe a new way that uh, people work, new jobs could have to do with transportation or education. And then toward the end of the day, we're gonna ask you guys to come up and, and start to use some of the materials that we've collected here to build the props, the set, that we might be able to use with our actors next week to live in these fictional worlds that allow us to see an alternative version of Queens where we could explore these new ideas and then come back to our neighborhoods and say, did I like it? Did it not work for me? How could I change it? How could I progress it? There's a Thai dessert and grocery store place that recently just closed. The Sugar, Sugar Club. Club. I was so devastated <laughs> by that. Apparently it was just because it's not making money, but it's like a loss of a cool community. Build more new school for students that the family stay in Queens, not moving out to Long Island. Yeah. Sometimes I give it flashing, sometimes I try that. They both are very not clean. Uh -huh. I can just say that they are not clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's... A lot of garbage. I wonder if, you know, we could explore just like nations within a nation, within a nation. If there are, you know, some cards that feel like the positive sides of Queens, maybe you put them to one side, the negative, put them to one side. If there are things that you're not sure about, put them in the middle. Down uh -huh. and the sound comes out, it's supposed yeah. to soothe your stress. Sound, some kind of sound therapy. Yeah. So, this might be a good time for you guys to shift gears from thinking about Queens today to starting to imagine Queens tomorrow.
for the next part, we can look at everything, all, all of the things about Queens that you guys generated and maybe quickly write down a few opportunities we might see based on this. I think the food. A lot of yeah, comments food. about food. Food is food. definitely an opportunity. Don't change the food. Keep <laughs> <laughs> it spicy. <laughs> you're already tired from where you're coming back from or where you, towards where you're going. What could we do to improve that commute that makes yeah. you kind of like ready to yeah. either go to sleep or go start your work? She's describing some chairs in Chinatown, or I'm not sure where. Where oh. it's folded, but you, it goes down like this on the wall and sometimes if we don't sit just like that then you sit the chair can come like, out maybe the chair is actually part of the tree so maybe this is a tree and then like in here is like the that. chair yeah that's cool yeah, that's cool i don't think everyone have a technology background but i think this is a project that kind of make me to think about what can I do with, with my ability, what I know, what are the possibilities. And bringing people from different uh, upbringings or different backgrounds, it really makes, uh, makes it for a good soup, you know? Good ideas cook in, in that kind of broth. We came up with a public transportation solution that um, makes room for other activities while you're commuting, essentially. We created a cross-cultural lab. So different things to remind people of, of their homes, their native homes, and hopefully foster and advance harmony, acceptance, and tolerance, and celebrate diversity. It's the biggest, they say, the most beautiful, the most awe-inspiring, the most colorful, the most spectacular event of this era, the New York World's Fair. In a word, it's the greatest. The Queens Museum is also the site of the World's Fairs in 39 and 64 which is, to us, a, a very interesting context. The futures that were proposed at the World's Fair were really coming from companies like GE and General Motors and IBM. These were these top-down visions of the future where they were telling Americans what the future should be like. At the end of the day, this top-down version of a future was enacted in many ways. It's hard to believe there actually is an oven that can cook a roast in minutes by electronics. Then bake you potatoes in less time than it takes to carve the roast. And so this idea that we can rethink the space of the World's Fair and instead of using this top-down approach to proposing visions of the future, we allow for a, a grassroots bottom-up version of the future and then to turn it into this testable space is really exciting for us. One week later, the participants return for day two of the workshop. They file in to see fully executed versions of their prototype sets and props from last week, 
including a park seat built into a small tree, which can envelop the sitter in its foliage while producing a soothing sound bath. There are subway cars with multiple expanded uses, as well as tables set up with a repurposed fan and bubble blower, reimagined with a few alterations as devices to emit scents and tastes, evoking special places and memories. The participants will go through each individual set, spending time first to live in the imagined future it represents, and then discuss what they learned from doing so. We're just going to go one by one and uh, talk a little bit about each of the zones and then bring that zone to life in a hypothetical reality and then break back into the real world and think about how it may have changed our view on that idea. But I'm going to hand it over to the actors to start us off and uh, they'll lead us through an exercise. Cool. So we don't know y'all. And so we thought we would start by just, you know, doing like a very simple thing where we kind of get in a circle and like um, just to kind of get ourselves in our bodies and out of our brains a little bit. Kind of say our names and do a gesture. So everybody can kind of like get up yeah. in a circle. I'm Chris. <laughs> I'm Chris. Hi, I'm uh, Lucas. Hi, I'm Lucas. Hi, I'm Gordon. Hi, I'm Gordon. So just to kind of like create a threshold for that, let's all just kind of clap together once, and then we'll clap on our way out too, just to kind of like close that space. Yeah, you know? and it's just a symbol to say, hey, we're entering this kind of world. So like, um, just kind of, everybody just kind of make eye contact, feel your feet on the ground, here we go. This is gonna be a fun, weird thing we're gonna do, ready? So this is section number one, food bubble. So people can try foods from different countries, cultures, etc. And this is section number two, the scent gallery. Welcome everyone to our um, food bubble lab and cultural exchange restaurant. Does anybody like to have a seat? We need a party of two over here. I have a reservation for a party of two. Thank you, sir. Welcome. Anybody else? Do you have some uh, spicy Indian tumeric? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, Turmeric. Are you ready? Here it comes. Wow. Wow. If you want, you can share with the table. We can bring sharing. So inside, there's these smell bubbles. It's not just the smell of the mapu tofu or the cotton candy, but also the smell of the people, the activity, the city that this place was created. After the food bubble cross-cultural lab, the group heads over to the storytelling portal designed for implementation in a small park. It looks like a kind of small stage for puppets, where a participant steps into the stage to represent the virtual transmission of a live or pre-recorded story or skill share that can be dialed up on demand by someone on the other end. Okay, 
So it's just a piece of fabric. Mm -hmm. we take a two yard, okay? Long. Two yard. One, okay. two. Got it. Okay, then you, you measure it. And you please use the stretchy fabric. Stretch, yes, yes. Pretty okay. stretchy. Yep, and I can go see to that. the middle of the fabric and then cut two armholes. Okay, that would be easier to cut. Use the scissor to, to, to cut it. And then, and then you're going to so finish the circle of the sewing. Mm -hmm. And then you can wear the scarf any way you want. Okay, I like it this way. That appetite to learn and to know and to discover is so profound in each of us. So any gateway that opens and expands that accordion and invites people in is a day well spent in the park. Then on to a small stage, at the front of which are styrofoam cells tricked out to represent tiles on a street or walkway that can instantaneously absorb trash and separate it into its recyclable or reusable components. So we need to put things in my categories. We are the floor right now. The materials are then automatically upcycled into products to be distributed in an above-ground shop. Next up are the expanded-use subway cars, represented by chairs lined up around a mini garden of faux greenery and workout equipment prototyped from paper and cardboard. And just imagining, like, uh, with more and more people moving to Queens, train traffic would only get worse. And what if we tra transform that into a place of opportunity? And, well, these are just some different, like, different ideas we came up with. There's one segment that's like a co-op community garden. Why don't we harvest a few of these fiddlehead fern bean combination hybrids? And I guess this is like a gym where like people can host classes and you can exercise. Finally, the group moves on to the set of the Serenitry, the aforementioned park bench built into a small tree made of lumber and fake greenery, where a passerby can sit on a large rock and be cocooned by the tree's limbs and the sounds of a soothing sound bath and guided meditation. Sound therapy, so there would be natural sound and a guided breathing exercise. No, Mom, I told you. No, I, I don't want to come home. Beep, beep, hop, hop. Out of my way, I'm 
Todd, you know what, Mom? I'm gonna have to call you back in like five minutes. I just need some time to myself, okay? All right, goodbye. Now entering the Feel the sensation associated with the carbon moving from this tree to the others, carried by the underground mycelium. At this point, the participants join in to represent the healing properties of the serenity by calmly waving their arms around the woman seated on the rock, making calming noises to assist in the relaxation process. Saturday and embodying fictions as a way to get into these these possibilities these hypotheticals It just reminds me of a lot of child play. It's like what we were like little kids playing imagine like let's imagine this And I think it's very great exercise that when we grow up we stop to imagining what could have happened and even for you to act it out it's just amazing to kind of bring you into that thing hey that could be possible this is possible democratizing the process of thinking what the future might look like. It's, it's super important in Queens, especially, where um, there's so many cultures, there's so many uh, economical uh, systems in place. There are very particular government agencies and technology companies or just companies in general that are imagining what the future would look like. But if we give the power to the people and to challenge the assumptions of these technology companies, then we can start designing together, kind of like in a democratic way. That I really liked about this exercise. I feel like uh, what we did today and the last Saturday is like uh, we all together interviewing the future, interviewing the future of Queens or all and then the world. You know, so this is something we all collectively come together. One thing that I'm thinking about looking at all of these is like how well it seems like it's they're making use of existing systems or conditions, but also at the same time it's like exploiting people, the vulnerability of people who are in these conditions. Like, oh, because we have long commutes, we're gonna make it comfortable so that you'll be able to endure. Instead of like changing the way you live, you had to change the way like everybody experienced the space. I think that's really valuable. So you were able to acknowledge that you were making concessions or accepting concessions to yeah. the system that's there. So part of this process for you may have been putting something out into this hypothetical test space and allowing these to be the, um, the canvas for adjusting the definition of your problem. I think that's really nice. You guys really, really terrific. 
you all have all abstract ideas, and you are going to make it realistic, or maybe in future that will be really come up something true. So this is what I want to say. Okay, good job. Thank you. <laughs> good job. This is not about um, you know, a, a scientific approach to experimentation, but rather a collective visioning where, where we can all sit down and say, hey, would we like to try this thing in our own neighborhoods? Uh, and can we make a safe space where that type of uh, action or engagement feels comfortable, but at the same time allows us to kind of push the boundaries of, of what we want our society to feel like so we can find these new and next ways of cohabitating. You know, as the old song says, the future will be, and it's not ours to see. Uh, but at the same time, we, we are actants on the world around us. We, we can affect change, and if we take that mentality as we go into um, whatever scenario we're entering, we actually do have agency over the future. And so if people come away from this workshop feeling that uh, sense of agency, I think that's a, a really big step in the right direction. That's Elliot Montgomery, who founded the Extrapolation Factory with Chris Wobkin. After the workshop at the Queen's Museum, they presented some of the props the group created at Milan Design Week, where they won the grand prize. What you're about to see is an imaginative glimpse into the future. We'll see some rather startling things, some of which may be commonplace by then. Here we go, to the city of the future, and we're visiting the home of Mr. and Mrs. Ames, who might be your neighbors or mine. Hi, first. Hi, Nanny. Hello, second. Hello, darling. Hey, Mom, I'm hungry. What have we got for dinner tonight? We're having sirloin steak broiled in butter. Steak, steak, steak. Every night the same thing. Can't we ever have anything else? Danny, my boy, you're lucky to get steak. Okay, I'll make a deal with you. If you'll get me one of those new Super P-1038 convertible rocket planes to fly to school, I'll eat anything you say. Danny, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You've got a lovely plane now. That old helicopter? That's no fun. Now, Danny, I told you before, we can't afford a rocket ship. Now, if I hear any more out of you, I'll ground you. Then you'll have to get along with an automobile. Okay, okay, I'll be good. Golly, if I had to start going around in an automobile, my girl would take one look and say, shoo, shoo, baby. Hi, my name's Yasha, and I'm in Brooklyn, New York. I think 2020 has, for me, highlighted the power of the individual to change the future. And so when I look forward and try to predict what's going to happen, I feel... I don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you I feel galvanized and I feel empowered and I've seen the power of individuals coming together to make change and more than ever I believe that it sounds cliche, but a lot a lot can a lot can change depending on on those actions of those individuals and I've certainly felt like I've become more effective at 
you know, as a citizen, um, never phone banked before, now I am, it makes me feel like I can somewhat have some control over what's going to happen in the future, and even if I don't, I'll look back and, and know that I tried my hardest and put in work that did make change. So when I conceive or try to conceive of the future, I feel optimistic, weirdly, even though all this craziness and um, chaos is happening, I do feel optimistic and I feel I feel excited for a future where health and safety are things that we don't all have to be so worried about. So I think that's about it. I'm going to try to keep being optimistic and phone bank and do everything I can do so that the future is good. Yeah. Some of the most famous fashion designers in the U.S. today have been asked to forecast what Eve will look like in A.D. 2000. One idea is a dress that can be adapted for morning, afternoon or evening. It's the sleeves what does it. According to another artist, one dress of the future will consist of transparent net. The net uh, probably to catch the males. Apparently in A.D. 2000 we shall be having a hair-raising time. Yet another designer goes so far as to believe that skirts will disappear entirely. Shoes will have cantilever heels, and an electric belt will adapt the body to climatic changes. The lightly clad woman of tomorrow, ooh, swish, will move in an atmosphere that's scientifically kept at the right temperature. The future bride in a wedding dress of glass. What the groom will wear, apart from a worried look, isn't mentioned. A dress of aluminium, with a sash to change it for afternoon or evening and an electric headlight to help her to find an honest man. As for him, if he matters at all, there won't be any shaving, collars, ties or pockets. He'll be fitted with a telephone, a radio and containers for coins, keys and candy for cuties. Hello everyone, my name is Cameron Roberson, uh, a.k.a. Rob Cameron, and I am coming to you today from Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Uh, besides being managing editor of the NYC, I am also lead organizer for Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, the largest science fiction fantasy writers group in New York City. And I am also an uh, essayist and speculative fiction writer, of course. I have essays in Tor and in New Modality, and uh, my latest work is in Foreign Policy, The Case for Black Self-Defense. So please uh, look me up uh, in all those places. Look for Rob Cameron. My vision of the future, uh, and just, I guess, general terms, is a positive one, which my, my daughter can, can grow up, and she can do and see and feel all the things that she's ever wanted with as few restrictions as possible. And you know, I guess how has that vision changed since 2020? Uh, well, honestly, <laughs> it hasn't really changed so much. I mean, that's still my drive, my goal. The difference is that now it feels like we're kind of at the climax of a story, and we need some resolution within the next uh, two to three weeks <laughs> here in the United States before we can see anything uh that is going to be something other than a dystopia we have to fight our way through. And I'm very much anti-dystopia. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. 
in a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes. You never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. The Right to Bear Arms by Zach ZYZ. I think he stole the election, and he's been an absolute disaster for this country. I mean, look at me. Somehow, I'd started talking politics, as if it was the old times and you could just do that, strike up a conversation with someone, and say what you think. I held up the two prosthetic arms I'd come to have adjusted. They were good arms when they worked, made of lightweight composites, sturdy and powerful, and most importantly, they felt real. But they weren't working now. The pinky finger on the right arm kept extending when I closed the fist, and from time to time, the whole arm would spasm with a clacking jolt that startled people. Most were too polite to mention it, but I'd come to dread that uncomfortable moment where they didn't know what to say. The technician gave me an odd look. With my pinky extended, I must have looked like I was putting on airs. I absolutely wasn't. I was about half a disability check away from holding a cardboard sign on 8th Avenue that said, Veteran, please help. I almost said so, but the tech extended the arms on his examination table and had me lie on my back while he restrained both of my prosthetics. I stared up at the ceiling, comfortably crucified. I bit my lip, telling myself to shut up. If I went too far and said too much, the technician might ask me to leave. Dr. Ludo's office was my last chance, and if this didn't work out, I was almost certainly going to be on the street in a month's time. I'd be in good company. I heard on the news that if they took all the homeless vets in Manhattan and armed them, you would have an entire division. It was always looming at the edge of my thoughts, with every day where nobody called me back for an interview, where 20 more resumes went unanswered. I was going to run out of money and get evicted. I'd take my place among the lost, holding a sign, sleeping in the subway. It was inescapable. When New York City ground to a state-mandated halt, some people were more prepared than others, but few were as prepared as Jason Charles, one of the organizers behind the NYC Preppers Network. The group meets monthly to share ideas and information on preparing for the worst. Information like how many cans of food and gallons of water a person should have stashed away, or what goes into a perfect bug-out bag. You know, the bag you grab when you have to hightail it out of the city and get to safer ground. I met up with Jason as the novel coronavirus was just showing up in our communities and beginning to alter our lives, at a moment when preppers like him were starting to look a lot less paranoid than they may have once appeared. Here's Jason. Preppers, we have an imagination that allows us to get ready for certain events, whereas the average person doesn't. 
you look at the future differently because you see things coming. The average person sits there and they worry about smoking weeds or uh, what Kim Kardashian is wearing or what car is, is coming out. That's their future. That's what they worry about. I don't worry about it. I just look at things differently now, like knowing that a pandemic was going to come. Knowing that is why you get ready so that you don't have to worry about it. So my name is uh, Jason Charles. I am one of the organizers of NYC Preppers Network. NYC Preppers Network are a group of people who prepare for upcoming disasters, if you will. We just get ready for things that might happen. And so when they do happen, we, we're ready. When I started prepping, it was a bit overkill with my uh, supplies. And I started buying everything under the sun. As the years went by, I started seeing that the disaster is not going to happen tomorrow. It can happen tomorrow. It can happen 50 years from now. So what you need to do is get a few extra items over time. You don't have to get it all today, and you don't have to sit there and, and stretch it out either. Now, my ninth year in prepping, I don't worry about much. I know that I'm ready for most of it, and I don't have to panic like everyone else does when something happens. Okay, so this is my preparedness closet. I jokingly call this the end of the world closet. In here I have food, water, medical supplies, uh, prescription meds. I have lanterns, uh, extra water to wash my hand, not drink. I have drinking water in there. I have vacuum sealed rice, seasoning, uh, sugar, flour. And this is what my prepping closet looks like. Now this is just one part of my prepping supplies. I do have stuff all throughout the house. So today is March 15, 2020, and uh, the coronavirus is changing our lives as we speak. Has it disrupted any services? Not yet. If it does, then we'll, we'll, we'll know how bad it's going to get if the cops and farmers stop coming into work. They stop coming into work, we're going to feel it. I have gone out and gotten extra supplies, but I haven't had to use them yet because we're not at that stage yet. We're not at lockdown. Once we go to lockdown, if we go to lockdown, now you're talking about a different ballgame. Once I have to tap into my preps, I'll be ready. I'm not worried about it. Now, there are always curveballs in life, and that's the problem. So with the curveballs in life, you have to roll with those unforeseen events. Like I said, I'm not panicking. I'm not sitting there going, oh my God, this is getting worse. It's going to get worse. I know it's going to get worse. So all we got to do now is just play it day to day. I've always had a, a, a wild imagination to begin with, right? So as a prepper, it allows me to, I guess, uh, embrace it, if you will but not to a point where I'm, I'm worried about alien attacks and zombies, you know? I have a more realistic approach. I Don't get me wrong, I do think about aliens and things like that, but I'm not worried about it happening today. 
but we know that there's going to be another world war, right? We know that there's going to be another pandemic. We know that there's going to be another hurricane hit New York, and it's going to be another blackout. Preppers are going to be, I guess, backed by a situation like this now. They're going to realize that, thank God I was prepared. Right, thank God I had the N95 mask ahead of time. Thank God I had a bunch of Purell hand sanitizers on my own already. I don't have to worry about going to the store and not finding them. We hope that the average person would actually get on board now and start prepping because of something like this. But we are all, um, I guess, goldfish, right? Goldfish. This will pass, we'll forget about it. That's how the human brain's designed, I guess. Quickly forget. So when I was like really, really, really young, um, when I was in London, my mom would get like these cassette tapes, you know, to familiarize me with like Iranian like kid stories. She would get these like cassette tapes from Iran, which had like these famous Iranian kid stories. And it kind of like reminds me of that because, <laughs> because back in the day, this is like during the war, like there was one person reading these stories and doing all the voices. <laughs> like it was this man pretending to be a woman pretending to be the little mouse you know they're very like when you listen to them now I was like this is so creepy because it's also like you know teaching kids how to be resilient because you know you're surrounded by bombings and like wars right. and stuff. yeah so it takes me back to my childhood even in the year 3000 the question would be what's for dinner the answer will be in a package that saves energy, nutrients, and trouble. A package that can last the three-year journey to Jupiter and back and back. Even in the year 3000, we see the brilliance of food in cans. Hey everyone, welcome to Griffin's Corner. Well, let's get into it. The year is 2050. I look around. There's a bunch of robots walking every single way. I look to my right. There's a robot just going around town, it looks like. And then there's a robot just with a human just walking around. And then it looks straight. I see Rick radio's studio and i say i must be in brooklyn so i walk into the studio people are just walking around with robots by their sides i don't know why but i think it's some coincidence i think to myself this must be a dream. It can't be real. So, I just keep on, I just go out of 
the studio and just keep on walking. I see that there is a giant map of Brooklyn. I go over to it. It shows a big red dot where I am. I see it shows where Brick Radio Studio is, right behind me. And then it shows me some apartments. So then I just start rock walking around again. And I see a bus come by. And I'm like, is this a regular bus? It's not. It was floating. It did not have wheels. It was just straight up floating. I flip out. I say, what? This is unbelievable. So, I go into town. I just, I see a bunch of robots again. And then, I, I wake up in my bed. And I think, oh, I must have just been dreaming. Then, a robot walked into my room to give me breakfast. So, that's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say is, um, well, have a good week. Thanks for listening. Brooklyn! Brooklyn, USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shireen Barri. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Karel Palmer. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Brick Radio Junior correspondent Griff City, Taylor Cook, Lauren Germain, Chris Vobigan, and Elliot Montgomery over at Brooklyn's Extrapolation Factory, Cameron Roberson, and the rest of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers Group. You can listen to their podcast, Kaleidocast, at kaleidocast.nyc. If you want to speculate about the future, tell us a story, or somehow end up on our podcast, check the show notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your phone and sending it to us on the internet. If you like what you hear or think we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow Abrick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Well, first of all, let me get things straight. I think the Loch Ness Monster is just an eel. Second of all, I think that the Loch Ness Monster could just be a bird. And third of all, and I think least, it's probably, it, it could be something else, but I don't know. So, this is the end. Bye.